Good morning, everyone. My name is JB with Not By Works Ministries. It is Wednesday, April the 12th, and I am delighted uh, to be uh, posting two podcasts today. Uh, first, here in a little bit, I'm going to bring on a couple of new friends of mine, Jeremy and Brian, who live out in Wisconsin. I'll say more about them in just a moment, but they're going to be uh, uh, doing this uh, podcast with me as we just talk about a variety of topics and questions that I think are of interest in uh, these great last days of deception. Uh, and then later on today, we'll be posting my weekly World Events Update with Randy. I know everyone looks forward to that each week, and I look forward to talking with him and hearing the latest on uh, what's going on in the world. But uh, uh, last night, we had a wonderful prophecy night. It was uh, our 11th installment in that series, and I spent the evening last night talking about Romans 13, Christians and the government, and it was really uh, one of the most comprehensive times that I've been able to go through this issue of Romans 13 and what it really means um, in my ministry. I've, I've done some podcasts on it. I've certainly spoken about it from the pulpit many times. I've been asked about it on air many times, but I wanted to put together a, a comprehensive video that really addresses uh, the history of the misuse and abuse of Romans 13 within the church, what it really means in context, and just kind of exegete the passage verse by verse. So we did that last night. That's been posted already, both the podcast and the video. If you can watch the video on our Rumble channel, I encourage you to do that because I've got a lot of visuals uh, on the video that will help, I think. Uh, but always you can watch the podcast, and that's posted out there. I think we already had over 2,000 uh, views uh, as of this morning. Uh, so I want you to spread that far and wide. It's a key issue uh, in our day, the issue of Romans 13, and many believers uh, unfortunately use that uh, passage uh, as uh, a, a means of uh, suggesting that we must uh, bow down and do whatever the government says. And I think the closer we get to the return of the Lord, the more important it's going to be for Christians to understand the proper institutions of God and how our relationship with God supersedes our relationship with any single government. Uh, so that's out there for you to watch. And um, uh, several other podcasts uh, are uh, available. I did one Monday with Shane just a couple days ago on AI and uh, uh, just where it's headed and why we should be concerned about it. Uh, I, that was another powerful, uh, I think we talked for almost an hour and a half. Uh, that was a follow-up to one I did with Shane several weeks ago. Uh, and boy, that one has a wealth of information. I just love Shane to death and appreciate his time. Uh, so yeah, lots of good material out there this week. And uh, just uh, looking forward to uh, worshiping again next weekend at Plum Creek Chapel. Remember, you can go to notbyworks.org and sign up for our newsletter at the bottom of the page there uh, to stay informed with uh, my speaking engagements and what's going on uh, in the ministry here at NBW. But we sure appreciate all your support and appreciate the prayers and the encouraging emails. I got caught up over the weekend on emails, but now I'm behind again. So I've got... Uh, 12 in my inbox that I'm hoping to uh, to tackle today if I have time between these podcasts or after the podcast. But appreciate your patience. I know folks uh, email me and sometimes it takes a few days and sometimes even a couple of weeks to get back to them. But uh, we're trying to stay on top of it. And uh, But thanks for your prayers. Thanks for your encouragement. God's doing some neat things uh, in and through uh, not by works. Um, my family is really blessed to be working with me in this ministry. My wife, of course, is uh, the big secret is she's the brains behind the operation. So uh, she should get the credit, but uh, love of my life, Wendy. And then Brooke, uh, one of our daughters works for us and she's handles so many of the administrative things and the phones, calls and emails and order fulfillment and all of those things. So chances are, if you've 
had any kind of interaction with our ministry, uh, either in writing or phone or email or texting or uh, social media, you've interacted with her. Uh, you may not know it, but that's who you're interacting with. So appreciate Brooke as well. So today we're going to do one of these uh, Zoom uh, meetings where uh, I've always made it uh, an offer out there, a standing offer, that if you've got a group of people or even just a couple of people like today that want to schedule a Zoom meeting and just talk about the things of the Lord and what's going on in this world, I'm happy to do that. And so uh, Jeremy and Brian, who live up in Appleton, Wisconsin, uh, reached out some weeks ago, and we put this on the calendar today. They've got some great questions. They've sent me some of them, and uh, I think these will be really interesting to dive into. So uh, Jeremy and Brian, thanks so much for joining the Not By Works podcast today. You guys doing all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. good, Davey. Thanks for having us on and uh, the opportunity to meet you and speak with you, ask questions. And it's been a blessing to um, listen to you the last couple of years. Um, you've basically been um, my pastor, uh, be it through distance. Um, I've had um, and do have, of course, pastors I go fellowship with. But as the world's been in turmoil the last couple of years, so has our fellowship. Um, but it's been a blessing. Uh, the Lord's given, and I think Ephesians four, those for uh, keeping us being wind uh, blown around with every wind of doctrine, and just really appreciate not, uh, you know, being stuck in perpetual deception without knowing it. Uh, didn't realize in so so many areas, you know, how the world lies to us, and uh, we appreciate you for um, your ministry and. Um, yeah, I uh, also was kind of curious in the opening of your first volume, Spirit of the Antichrist, you thank Wendy, your wife, for um, coming alongside with you through down the rabbit hole and for pulling you out when um, it gets too deep or I forget yeah. how you work exactly, but I know um, it's been a journey for us to just, um, you know, with how we see that the world is changing and uh, in our marriage. Um, can you like touch on how it was a journey for you guys? Was Wendy on board right away or um, did it take her a while to? <laughs> yeah. Think? Let me, I'm looking it up right now to see uh, what I, uh, what I said there in the acknowledgements page, if I can find it here. Uh, uh, but yeah, I said something to that effect in uh, volume one here when I, gave out the acknowledgments. Of course, I dedicated volume one to uh, uh, Shane, but then in my acknowledgments page, I said, I want to acknowledge, I want to thank the following people. My wife, Wendy, for descending into the rabbit hole with me and for pulling me out when I go too far. So, yeah. So, yeah, we woke up together. Um, you know, we both were raised in Christian families, and like many uh, conservative Bible-believing Christians, we were blessed to, to, you know, to grow up in fellowship with the Lord. Not perfect by any means. We've had our uh, individually, as in our journey, you know, before we met, uh, certainly not uh, necessarily perfect by any means. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, you know, grew up knowing the Lord and fellowshipping the Lord. I was saved at the age of six. I think she was saved at the age of eight. Uh, we met after college uh, and uh, were married in 92. So we were married coming up on 31 years. Uh, but uh, the first uh, several years of our marriage, we were like many Christians, just kind of buying into the to the official narrative of of life, the the right left paradigm, the Republican conservative, you know, Republican Democrat paradigms, um, 
just you know most of the historical narratives we assumed were accurate and 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 we just believed everything we've been told so i was a pretty staunch conservative you know uh a rush limbaugh kind of sean hannity type uh and um and then it was a conversation with Shane, who I've already mentioned. Uh, I worked with him. I, I spent 12 years working in academics, uh, both as a professor and an administrator uh, at a large Bible college and then at a seminary. And uh, Shane worked th- there with me. Uh, and he's a brilliant guy. He's uh, uh, not, currently now, he's still actually there, but he uh, is a professor. And at the time, though, he was an IT director. And he's also working in, in distance ed now today, but uh, brilliant technology guy. But anyway, we got to be fast friends. We would go to lunch several times a week. And uh, the Lord used him to kind of get me to look into a number of uh, anomalies with official stories that we have been told. And it just, I don't know what it was, but the time was right. And I, I began to go, as I said, sort of go down the, the rabbit hole there to use that metaphor uh, from Alice in Wonderland. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, my wife, uh, you know, went right there along with me because we were both stunned by what we were reading. Of course, our initial reaction was, this can't be true. But the more we dug and, and of course, compared it to Scripture and my overall worldview of a dispensationalist, understanding God's plan of the ages, where we're headed, uh, it started to make sense. And so that was back in 2007. So that's been 16 years ago. And we, uh, right about that time, started traveling with Not By Works Ministries and with some other uh, ministries that I was involved with at the time. And so as we traveled, we would make a point. Uh, we were on the road for about 10 years, 250 days a year, give or take. And uh, our kids traveled with us, uh, the ones who were still at home. And um, and we made a point to go and research certain geographic locations and places that had relevance for you know historical events uh, related to the Luciferian conspiracy, as I came to understand it. And uh, so, um, so she was right there along with me. Uh, there are times when you know she might be more skeptical of something we're looking into than I am, or I might be more skeptical of something than she is. We balance each other out. Um, but what I meant in the uh, epigraph there of my book was that that <clears throat> this is a heavy topic and there were, were times when it was so all-consuming that it would begin to affect uh, my health and and just my psyche and I would get depressed and there were times when she would rightly say look we need to just step back or we would just instinctively both just step back and just kind of set it aside for a couple of weeks at a time to kind of recalibrate because it's when you start looking at especially into some of the satanic ritual abuse, some of the demonic activity, the paranormal, when you look at so many of the lies that we've been told. Um, and, and by the way, you know, I still run into people today uh, all the time uh, in my travels, especially as the Lord is blessed not by works, and we've gotten some exposure in the last three years, um, that the the get the uh, hosts or the ministry leaders that are inviting me in to speak or having me on their programs will tell me up front, hey, don't talk about this, or please don't bring up this, because in their journey, they're not there yet. They haven't figured out that they've been, uh, frankly, deceived. I don't mean that in a pejorative way, because I was there. So I believe me, I understand, you know, it takes a while to, to piece together the pieces. But uh, And I'm always gracious and willing to avoid topics that might cause problems for, you know, certain ministries. And so, um, you know, it's it's something that uh, is is a real is a real uh, profound feeling when you begin to 
realized how much you've been lied to uh, throughout history in public schools and college, uh, in the news media, in books that we've read. Almost nothing is as it appears anymore. And uh, so we have a healthy skepticism um, and we try to you know balance each other out. But yeah, she's uh, she's been a, a blessing. She has not, uh, there really haven't been any issues like I know so many couples you know d- deal with when when one is awake and one's not um and by the way when we talk about you know being awake you know someone pointed out to me that I should try to you know define that maybe a little bit because we we use this uh this phrase and we you know as if everybody knows what it means and people in the the you know the arena of studying bible prophecy and especially studying the luciferian conspiracy usually do know what it means but it's based on 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 where Paul says you brethren are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief you are all sons of the light and sons of the day we are not of the night nor of the darkness therefore let us not sleep as others do but let us watch and be sober. So, uh, you know, the term being awake, quote unquote, just means, you know, you have come to realize that many of the big narratives uh, that we've been told are not true, that, you know, the, the, particularly the fact that there's a, a Luciferian elite, uh, just as the Bible says there is, uh, that is really running things behind the scenes in America and really globally, but for our purposes in America. So, you know, I don't really you know, buy into the, all of the uh, political right left, you know, banter that goes around, you know, if we can just elect this guy or, you know, if this person, you know, is great, you know, uh, whenever I hear or see a, a conservative uh, personality being elevated in the news media, I immediately start researching and I look into, you know, the truth behind them. So one example, and then I'll I'll turn it back to you for your next question or co- comment, but um, you know, Ron DeSantis, back during the pandemic, he got a ton of exposure, and right now he's the hero of a lot of conservatives. And I certainly do resonate with a lot of the things that he says, but all you all it takes is, you know, about an hour of time to just do some research and you find out, you know, he's skull and bones from Yale, most likely. There's some question about that, but certainly he runs in those circles. And then also he was the one that was put in charge of Guantanamo Bay and, and making sure uh, that they uh, didn't violate uh, the the uh, rights of the prisoners there. He was the, the one that was charged with checking and making sure that we, you know, that we didn't overstep our bounds there. And of course, we know we did. We tortured those people, to, you know, to death in some cases. And so, but he said, nothing does he here move along. So there are many th- more things we could talk about, but if you take the time to see how people fit into the big agenda, what you usually find, not always, usually, you'll find that uh, the conservatives, you know, have a past. They were put there for a reason. It's controlled opposition. And uh, there's really not much difference in the big picture of of where we're headed. So, yeah, that's a little bit about our journey. Thanks for letting me, you know, relate that. Yeah, thanks for the answer. And uh, it resonates with me, uh, you know, with my marriage. My wife is also, you know, really supportive and um, as one, um, you know, just she's supportive and, you know, as you know, I haven't researched like you have in depth, but still, you know, a lot of what we see happening, you know, being awake to and watching like the Lord told us to can be, uh, yeah, sometimes troubling, vexing or what have you, uh, hard pressed and um, grateful for our wives to be our helpmate in that. And uh, 
I know you mentioned the um, <clears throat> left-right paradigm and um, that being politically in our nation. I was kind of curious on a global scale for like nations. Do you think it's a possibility with the drive with this uh, spirit of the Antichrist towards a one world order or whatever you know it is called? Uh, do you think it's probable that nations that might seem to be warring with each other and against each other are you know really just doing that for crisis sake to their desired outcome um that they're not really against each other but kind of like the false left right political paradigm there's some type of false left right paradigm between nations to achieve this global architecture they're trying to build yeah, that's a great question, Brian. Um, yeah, I definitely think there are always layers of uh, deception and, and agenda behind global conflicts. No question. Uh, World War II, World War One, uh, people were working both sides. Prescott Bush, for example, financed both sides of World War II, uh, and uh, that was the 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 patriarch of the Bush dynasty. Um, and so, you know, he financed Hitler. Let's just come right out and say it. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think. A lot of it is for show and there's a deeper agenda. But, you know, the thing about the conspiracy is that it's it's on a need to know basis. And so it's very layered. As I try to diagram in the book, there certainly is a top tier level of people that are getting their marching orders directly from Satan, uh, you know, as we read about in Scripture. And they you know, certainly orchestrate things and moves the move the pawns around on the chessboard in ways that people lower down the food chain might not know. So I think in many cases, the global conflicts really do involve real feelings of animosity toward each other among the two sides. But like if you take Ukraine, Russia, I really do believe, and I'm growing to believe this more and more as more details come out, that Zelensky was a complete pawn. I mean, he was definitely a, 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 a Klaus Schwab guy. Uh, he was Russian. In fact, they had to teach him to speak Ukraine when he left his television show to become the president. Uh, it's funny how so many television reality TV stars are becoming presidents these days. Uh, but anyway, it just shows you how there are so many puppets, you know. Um, and I think that th this that's all part of a larger agenda of, uh, you know, uh, Russia expanding its uh, borders. And of course, as a biblical Christian, we believe that seems to be setting the stage for the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war very clearly. Um, but, um, you know, I think the, the other thing to remember is that within the Luciferian global conspiracy, there are factions, there are differing opinions, there are rogue elements. So like right now, I believe there are really three sort of... Um, sides, if you want to call it that, of the, the globalist movement, uh, humanly speaking. We know Satan is at the top trying to pull the strings, but he's not omniscient, nor is he omnipotent, so he can't just make it happen, or he would have done that a long time ago. Uh, so he has to deal with human beings, world leaders, kings, and, and presidents. And they have their own agendas sometimes. Like, uh, for example, this is I'll come back to my first example that I was going to give in a second, but this popped into my mind. Back during the Obama administration, you know, Obama was clearly the uh, the the first Manchurian candidate, meaning he was groomed from birth to become president. Um, and uh, they really thought they had him tightly controlled. But, you know, anybody that becomes president of the United States, leader of the free world, as they say, is a pretty powerful person. And so no matter how controlled they might be, they still 
might do things that the old guard Luciferian elites might not like. And he did some of that. And so we saw, uh, I mean, not publicly, but those who researched it and looked into it at the time, uh, saw that the behind the scenes, there was a lot of tension between the new elites and the old elites within this conspiracy. And, um, but, but similarly, you know, in, in the, uh, in the grand scheme of things, we've got sort of three beachheads. So China is, is, is not necessarily signed on directly to the, the one world Luciferian agenda. They kind of have their own agenda. Now the Satan is pretty powerful and his, you know, elites at the top of the pyramid are using uh, even China to roll out the one world system that's, that's, you know, nigh upon us already. Um, but they are somewhat of a wild card. Similarly, Russia is a wild card. Now, they are a little bit more of a player in the game. But what concerns a lot of uh, analysts is that Russia and China seem to be getting real chummy right now, and they seem to be forming an alliance. And so that the reason that troubles me is different than the way it troubles some of the you know more knowledgeable geopolitical experts who come at this from a simply a geopolitical perspective, but from a spiritual perspective and a biblical perspective, the reason that troubles me is that if if they align themselves in a in a agenda that is contrary to the the Luciferian agenda of this one world system, that could trigger you know a some kind of a blow up that could really cause a kink in the plans of these Luciferians that's beyond their control that, you know, uh, so you could have some war breakout that, you know, that they weren't expecting. In other words, if if the, the Luciferians have their plan, they, they are rolling it out systematically. I've talked about that extensively in both books. And as long as things go as they plan, they're targeting this decade to have the one world system in place. That's been documented for 100 years now. So that doesn't mean it's going to happen, though, as I've often said. It doesn't mean it's going to happen, first of all, because God's the one that's ultimately in charge of the timetable. But it also doesn't mean it's going to happen because potentially there could be these types of unexpected you know, uh, hiccups along the way when not everybody plays by the rules the way the Luciferians want them to. So I just feel like there's a lot of un unrest, a lot of uh, on instability. And it's like a ticking time bomb. You know, some rogue leader could get mad at some other rogue leader and boom, next thing you know, you know, there's some kind of a, a, an issue. So um, yeah, it's not monolithic by any stretch. Um, you know, obviously God's plan is monolithic. He, there's only one God and one sovereign, but, um, but from Satan's perspective, there's a lot of things that, uh, you know, that could go wrong. Yeah, you had mentioned First Thessalonians earlier being woke and how we're not children of the night. And um, in there, it talks about peace and safety. So you know, it makes you think that um, the world's going to be at a place where they're crying peace and safety. We just want the answer. And it kind of makes me wonder if it could be these types of things, you know, that whether it happens because of infighting, like you mentioned there with Russia, China and the Luciferians or um if it's engineered crisis like they've been seemingly doing left and right you know like creating chaos and uh made me think of uh remember madonna recently at that demonic performance right before then she gave a shout out to all the rebels mm -hmm. um it makes me wonder 
if that's some of what's behind all of these accidents that are happening, all the fires of manufacturing plants, train derailments, you know, is it just, do you think, uh, we know it's not coincidence, uh, but um, do you think it's, you know, just their Hegelian dialectic for for creating crisis or they just want destruction. But I think it, you can see like whether it's the nations fighting like that or engineered that we're driving towards this instability where eventually they're going to want to be crying out peace and safety. And with that too, there's the rapture. Do you think the Bible, um, do you think the devil believes in the rapture? Uh, well, so when you say believes in it, he certainly knows about it. He's read the Bible. Uh, but he doesn't believe that it's uh, something that will impact his plan, uh, and he may not even believe God is capable of doing it. He is so self-deceived, which is the worst kind of deception, that yeah. even though he knows the Bible better than most Christians, he just doesn't believe that it's true. And uh, I'm sorry, Jeremy. Uh, I just, oh, oh, okay. So I guess what I was getting at with crisis there is like, I, I appreciate your... Uh, definition of you know how the devil's self-deceived and even though he knows about the rapture and the pre-trib rapture at that <laughs> that um he could be banking on that for the crisis that you know they can use right the that would be like the ultimate crisis right but yeah uh, but yeah i was just wondering like i wonder if they're like the Luciferians are like purposefully poking God in the eye, you know, the Lord in the eye, just saying, Hey, go ahead, take your church home. Uh, go ahead, take your restrainer home. Then those cords of, you know, the restraining force of the Holy spirit can be taken away from us and we can have our kingdom set up. You know? Yeah. Well, he's, that's a very good point. My wife and I were talking about something similar last night on the drive home from uh, prophecy night. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think Satan, hates Christ and he hates the church. And of course he hates God. So he, he, he's doing everything he can to destroy the church and to destroy Christians. He comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Um, whether he, you know, thinks of the rapture as, you know, something positive that would kind of get us out of the way so that the restraining influence of the church is move, removed and he can move on with his plan. I don't know, possibly, um, Obviously, we're talking about getting into the mind of Satan, which is a pretty dangerous place to be. So, you know, who knows? But I can tell you that, you know, that Hegelian dialectic that you talked about, which we have a chapter about that in volume one, I think it is. Uh, and I talk about it often. So I think most of our listeners are familiar with it. But it's, you know, Friedrich Hegel, the grandfather of communism, he came up with this model of problem, reaction, solution that if you want to get people to do something, you've got to make them want to do it. And so you create a crisis that will automatically initiate a predictable response, which is the response that you want so that you can actually roll out what you wanted all along. And so I think they use that model, not just at the top in the globalist arena, all the way down to local little, you know, evil people. They may not even know it's the Hegelian dialectic, but it's an instinctive way for evil people to try to manipulate and coerce others is they just... They just know. And, and that's, I think, what Hegel was pointing out. He wasn't inventing something. He was just pointing out a tool of deception that has been used for since time began, which is, hey, I want you to do this. And rather than forcibly make you do it with a gun to your head, if I can get you to want to do it, it's going to make it a lot easier. So I think we see that played out 
all over the place in you know small and large arenas um but clearly that peace and safety that you talked about you, we know that something after the rapture is going to happen that necessitates a world hero rising to the fore who facilitates the signing of a peace treaty with Israel and that's what starts the clock ticking on that final seven-year plan that Daniel talks about in Daniel 9, the 490-year plan that God outlines there. So, you know, I, I think uh, on a, you know, if the Lord doesn't come back soon, then we could very well see similar things happening to bring the United States under the official thumb of a one-world system. I mean, we're de facto probably already there. I mean, when the World Health Organization starts telling us how to do our medical practices, that that's we're kind of already there. And we're about to be signed on to a world digital currency. So it's happening incrementally. But to get us kind of across the finish line from the Luciferians perspective, they're going to need some unfreezing event that causes America, you know, to cry out. And, uh, they, you know, the globalists have been uh, saying this uh, uh, forever. I can't remember if it was uh, Kissinger or maybe Rockefeller, one of them uh, I quote in the book that talks about how, you know, hey, today America would be outraged if the UN troops rolled down the streets, but someday they'll be happy if there were some threat that threatened our very existence. They'd be crying out, save us from whatever, this pandemic, save us from this financial collapse. That's how I think they're going to cause the, uh, the uh, you know, CBDCs to roll out. Um, you know, I don't think it'll be 100% participation among Americans because I think too many Americans are awake to it and, and hopefully they will resist the temptation to sign on. But what's going to happen, I think, is they're finally going to pull the plug on uh, American economy and call the time of death. It's been on life support for decades now. And when they do, then they'll say, hey, for your own good, you know, we have no... We have no other choice, and you're just going to have to trust us, but for your own good, we're going to have to sign on to this world economy. So here's your new digital ID card. Um, we're going to give you you know, extra tokens up front if you sign on early. And then once you do that, they've got you. So. Yeah, JB, uh, thanks for having us. This is Jeremy. Um, I want to touch base on the CBDC question. Obviously, that's, in my opinion, will probably tie into the digital ID also. They'll be one and the same, if you will, is my opinion, at least. Um We'll get yours shortly, but you know you have made it clear that you and your family have drawn a line like the uh, you know the death jab that hey we're not gonna not gonna take that if you will um, you know in how do I phrase it in my family essentially if I'm the main breadwinner um, my wife does work part time but I guess trying to line it up with hey we do have a home with a small mortgage on it um, no other debt. Uh, we have a little bit of assets, you know, how is one who is, you know, maybe not completely debt-free supposed to, you know, uh, not take, not, not go into the CBDC system. And what does that look like for survival means? Like, is that being a good steward if you go into it, like, or don't go into it? And, or I guess I'm just having a challenge trying to decipher, you know, what's the best route for my family? And if we say, hey, we're not going to take it, then that obviously means, you know, probably losing our house, losing the assets that we do have. And then, you know, how is that protecting family, my my kids and my wife, that kind of thing? 
Yeah. So, Jeremy, that's that's a very important question. We actually got that same question last night at the Q&A after Prophecy Night. Um, So hopefully I give the same answer. (laughs) Otherwise, people are going to say, hey, this guy's all over the map. He doesn't know what he's talking about. No, I, I do. I do have a very clear, firm answer in my mind. But first of all, let me say that these a lot of these decisions, as with the uh gene editing bioinjections that they rolled out uh, are personal questions. And obviously, you know, every individual believer has to make their own choice. I don't disrespect someone who might choose to handle it differently. Um, but I do have very strong uh, studied f- opinions and feelings on why for us, this is a line in the sand. Um, you know, uh, let me give you the background of the the vaccine, you know, issue. So long before the pandemic was a worldwide issue, um, I like months before I had in preparing for a message that I was going to give at a conference in Tulsa, I had come across, you know, this whole Wuhan lab thing, and it was just starting to break over in China, but it wasn't anywhere in the news. It was on some obscure uh, alternative website. And I was just talking about that from the sense of how at that time that this expert on bioweapons had come out and said, hey, they were creating gain-of-function technology over there or capability over there, and this was created in a lab in North Carolina. And again, this was late 19, 2019, so before any of this broke. Um, and so in the context of that study and preparation in early 2020, I was listening to a podcast by Catherine Austin Fitz, and this was when the they were just beginning to say, see some things in Italy, and, and they were talking about, I think, maybe you might have had the first case of COVID in Seattle or wherever it was, but it was definitely it's definitely way before any pandemic and certainly before the uh, emergency declaration and all that. And she was ex- explaining what this uh, death jab was going to really be all about and what the ingredients were and what it really does as basically like a uh, operating system inside the body. And she did it with such great detail and 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 gave the sources and stuff that the Lord just convicted me right at that point. This is serious. And talked to my wife about it. And we just made a decision early on that this was a line in the sand for us. So that what the reason I bring that up is because as things progressed, and of course the world went crazy, and they rolled out the Great Reset and they shut the world down, forced Christians to stop, you know. Uh, worshiping Jesus and all that stuff um, in churches anyway, Um, you know, and they started pressuring people to take this, you know, this jab and the full on marketing campaign, the dangling, the carrots, forcing people with mandates, you're going to lose your job. You're going to not be able to travel. You're going to be kicked out of the military, whatever it is. Uh, For us, the decision was already made. It was just, it didn't, we never even found the slightest temptation to do it. It was a non-starter. Well, I feel the same way, Jeremy, about these digital IDs, because as you said, and, and and I'm glad you did, because a lot of people still haven't made this connection, the CBDC is in, inseparably linked to the digital ID. Just like, you know, the vaccine wasn't really about curing you from a, a virus, it was about control. In the same way, the CBDCs, which stands for Central Bank Digital Currency, uh, it's when the privately owned central banks of the world get together and create a digital means of transactionalism so that, you know, you cannot use cash or any other form of currency. You must use this digital uh, currency. The CBDC 
is not about transactional. It's about the digital ID. That's the key. And as I explained last night uh, at Prophecy Night, once you've signed on to the digital ID, it's game over. They now have complete and total control to track you. Uh, you know, my next book is uh, subtitled Hacking and Tracking Humanity. The, the, the title is The Spirit of the False Prophet. And I hope to have that out and available by October. Um, that's my plan. We've carved out time this summer to finish it. Uh, and then it takes a couple of months to do the editing and, and typesetting and get all that ready. But that book is going, going to be about how the false prophet during the tribulation is going to, you know, be tracking humanity. And since he's not God and neither is the Antichrist, they've got to use some artificial means to do that. And, 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 and what do we see happening now to lay the groundwork for that? So, uh, you know, that digital ID is a game changer. It will be able to tell. And, and by the way, I fully understand. So I can save people some emails. I fully understand that we already are tracked. I mean, if you've got a smartphone like I do, you know, you're being tracked. Uh, we're being listened to. They know where we're going. You know, I got in my car last night and automatically my smartphone, when I connected it to my car to use the maps, suggested that we stop at a restaurant on the way home that we had stopped at last Tuesday, you know, or recently on our way home. It's like it knows this is probably where you're going to go. And I'm thinking, how did it know that? Oh, yeah. No, they're tracking everything. So I get that there already is a complete control grid system in place, but the, the digital ID brings it all together under one unique identifier. And once they've got that, then they can control your medical issues, your finances, your travel. So, you know, now let's talk about the hard question. You know, I do think you need to decide now, like you did people like we did with the vaccine, because in the spur of the moment when they're holding a gun, a proverbial gun to your head, uh, you know, threatening you with certain things, you might end up making a wrong choice. Uh, so if you figure it out now and stand on conviction, it'll make the decision easier. So what about houses and jobs and so forth? Well, you know, uh, in, in once you, if, if you determine that this is a line in the sand, as we have done, then that means you might lose your house. That means you might lose your job, like it meant for a lot of people with the vaccine. Um, we did a podcast uh, years ago, or a couple, two or three years ago, on should Christians take the vaccine? And I addressed every conceivable question that people had emailed me about, well, you know, I'm a missionary and I, these people need Jesus across the sea. And if I can't take the vaccine, I can't go tell them about Jesus. I said, don't take the vaccine. Uh, my, my father's dying in ICU and they won't let me in to say my goodbye to him if I, if I take the vaccine. I said, don't take the vaccine. You know, I'm going to lose my job. Don't take the vaccine. It doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's a non-starter. Uh, God can bring Christ to other people without you taking a, you know, death shot. Um, you know, God never uses, you know, condones evil to bring about good. He can use it. And that's why after the fact, if people did it, there's, you know, there's vaccine remorse and there's God's grace is sufficient. And, and thankfully, not everybody's died who took it, uh, but certainly thousands have, as we know. Um, so God's grace is sufficient, but you don't want to presume on that grace if you have the information ahead of time. Uh, so, you know, let's talk specifically about your house, you know. Um, First of all, even if you didn't have a mortgage, you don't own your house. Nobody owns anything in America. So if you ever stopped paying the rent on the property, you will they will take your house away. And all they have to do is raise the taxes to such a point where you can't afford it, and they'll take your house. So 
you know, at this point, you know, if you have a mortgage, but you also have other debt, uh, or if you have a mortgage and you have you come across an influx of cash, I would take that cash and pay off every possible debt you can first before the house. I wouldn't prioritize the house. And then I would also even prioritize before paying off your mortgage, getting essential supplies and commodities and resources and things that you might need. Um, I'm not I'm not suggesting people not pay off their houses. Obviously, you know, no debt at all is better than some debt. But I'm just saying it's not a panacea to own your house outright because they can still take it away. You still have to pay taxes no matter what. And all they got to do is raise those taxes. So, uh, you know, God is bigger than all of this. People throughout the centuries uh, have lived nomadically, you know, think about the pioneers that moved from the East to the West. Think about the little house on the prairie type people, you know, they would pack up with their family, their dog, their food, their supplies, their horses, and they'd move and they'd find a place and they'd live. So we're not entitled to have a house. Um, but I, I would say we're quite a ways off from getting to the point that they're going to start forcing people to make their mortgage payments with, well, no, let me say this. Actually, just recently, I've started thinking that we might be closer than I think to where they might force you to make your mortgage payments with a digital ID once it's rolled out. But I still think we're quite a ways off from the to the, the stage where they would literally send out troops and start confiscating homes if you don't. I think we're a ways off from that. So, um, you know, trusting the Lord through all of it is is the key. And, you know, he will uh, take care. He's never seen the righteous forsaken, as David said. So, uh, you know, but you need to have contingencies. But if, if they're going to force me to sign up for a digital ID and they threaten me with taking my house, I'll give them the keys. I mean, I hate to say that, uh, but, uh, you know, we may have to suffer. Um, losing your job, to me, that's, and I don't mean to sound uh, insensitive or, or flippant by any means, but for me, that one's not a real hard one because our journey over 31 years, I've had so many different jobs and I've been in ministry and academics and in consulting work, and we started not by works, uh, which finally became our kind of our primary, uh, you know, way of making a living. Um, and we've we've had so many you know crises in our life through the years where we've you know lost a job or left a job on principle or been fired from a job that you know I just I don't worry about it. I just figure out what to do next, and if I have to, you know, you know. Uh, sell pizzas or, you know, <laughs> I can remember one time when the kids were real young, I uh, lost a job. This was long before I had gotten my PhD or gotten gotten even into academics at all. Just a young kid in my, I think it's late 20s, early 30s, lost a job. And Wendy, thankfully, you know, has a, a marketable job. She's a computer programmer and she's worked off and on through the years. Been a great uh, blessing to our uh, income. Um but uh, so she went back to work and to help make ends meet. But then I went out looking for a job. I actually interviewed for a door-to-door vacuum salesman at one mm -hmm. place. And, uh, you know, I'm like, Lord, whatever. I'll, I'll just need a DIN come, you know. So, uh, you know, I know nobody wants to lose their job. But to me, you know, losing your job, losing your house, um, it doesn't justify signing on for the digital ID. Now, one last thing, and I know this is a long answer, and I don't want to take up all your time because you got some great questions. But there's a lot of differing opinions out there right now, even among the conservative Christian crowd about digital currency and CBDCs and crypto and all this stuff. Um, 
I stand by what I've said all along. Um, I understand that private crypto has a measure of maybe security in people's minds that a global digital currency won't, but I still discourage people from being involved in that, no matter how much money people have made in the past. And I have friends that were involved in it and made lots of money uh, because at the end of the day, if you can't touch it, you don't own it. And even though it may be private and you may really think the guy in charge of whatever system you're using is good, or even if there's nobody in charge, it's all just you, you, you control it yourself. It's digital. And all they got to do is flip a switch and you can't get to it. I'm sorry. And so I just don't think that, you know, with all due respect to people that, you know, study this and, and are knowledgeable about it and have come to a different conclusion, I just don't think any type of digital transactional arrangement is wise. I think you need physical commodities of some kind that you can walk into the next room and put your hands on because otherwise you're at great uh, risk. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Uh if we are, uh, JB, if we are in the last of the last days, which I think we kind of believe we are, do you find it a a blessing that God would, you know, put the people listening, us, you know, asking the questions for such a time as this? I mean, we got to afford it as a great blessing and honor to be, you know, potentially born for such a time as this, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I thank the Lord every day that I live in this day and age. And frankly, especially the last three years, it's just, I'm thrilled with excitement because, you know, we spent 12 years, as I said, going down this rabbit hole, speaking about it, writing about it. My first book on the subject was back in 2012 called The Great Last Day's Deception. And I, back then I was just you know, vilified by people, people that I loved and respected, even family members, friends, the conference speakers, colleagues that just, I remember one guy at a school I worked for, you know, he literally, when I, I don't even remember what the subject was, but one of the topics that, you know, that I had been researching and he just said, man, you, you are tinfoil hat nutcase. You probably, you know, you were probably right there on the grassy knoll, you know, as if, you know, with reference to the JFK assassination, like somehow I am stupid because I don't believe the Warren Commission report. And it's just, you know, it, it was just, it was a struggle and it was so tiring and so discouraging. And Wendy and I would have conversation after conversation about, you know, attacks that we had faced and people that just didn't get in. And we would just go, man, I, I remember vividly multiple times having this conversation where we would say, I almost wish we never woke up. Ignorance is bliss. And if we just could go back to our old ways and pretend everything is okay, and just then we wouldn't feel this angst that we feel. But I got to tell you, Jeremy, in the last three years, a lot has changed, which is to me another sign of the times because more and more people are waking up. They're hungry for this. I really feel like the global elite are losing their grip, which is why I'm worried that you know, not worried. I know worries not of the Lord, but you know, I'm concerned that we could be seeing some major event happen very soon because they know that the longer they wait, it more and more people are waking up. With that, uh, more and more people waking up. Um, did you hear about some bill? I think in the Senate, like six eight six against TikTok. But it sounds like in the bill, you know how the bill's never about the bill. That's right. Well, it sounds like it's. Patriot Act 2.0, where it would be like 
about criminalizing speech on the internet and stuff. I, I did see that. Yeah, it's you know they that's a classic Hegelian dialectic. You know, you don't like TikTok and the Chinese and all this. Okay, well let's go get those bad guys. Come on, don't you want to get them? Yeah, let's go get them. And then they pass this bill, and all of a sudden, you know, you realize, uh oh, you know. That's a problem. I said the same thing back during all of the, the mandates when everybody was out there cheering, you know, Greg Abbott in Texas or Ron DeSantis in Florida, because they were making these executive orders saying you can't require masks or you can't do that. Well, look, nobody was more outspoken about uh, masks than me. I don't mean to sound like Trump that way, but I'm just saying, you know, I was very outspoken about masks, but I sounded the alarm and said, be careful what you wish for, because if we cheer these guys that are making executive orders that we like, we can't then turn around and criticize them when they make executive orders that we don't like. We've lost the the principle there. And the fact is they don't have the right to make any executive orders. They got to follow the constitution. So I feel the same way about that bill. It's a, it's an end run around freedom and freedom of speech. And uh, they're setting the stage for the complete uh, lockdown that's coming. Um. I'm really happy that the Lord gave us his word and uh, he told us all things that would be come to pass. I think it was before his crucifixion, he told the disciples that, like, I tell you what happens before it comes to pass, that when it comes to pass, you'll believe I'm he. And uh, I'm encouraged with Bible prophecy. It does the same for us. And, you know, especially in the days that we live, like you and Jeremy were talking about with the excitement. Um, man, if we didn't have the word of God to uh, encourage us with what, all what's happening around us, um, we'd really be a fearful, depressed mess, you know? Oh, yeah. But as us really um, just looking for the Lord, his uh, calling us home, saying, go get them. And um, especially as a father to young children, you know, it's like with the what we're talking about with our houses or jobs and you know we just want our our children to um not experience suffering and stuff but we're not promised to not have persecution or suffering in this world and um really personally i i know i need more strengthening of my faith and trusting in the lord in these times especially with my family but um how do you um keep yourself encouraged, uh, you know, with some of the negative stuff that we see happening, like, you know, the coronavirus, uh, the CBDCs, you know, where things are going, trampling our freedoms, controlling us and stuff like that. Just um, how do you encourage others and encourage yourself in the word of God with all of that? Yeah. So I, I think, uh, as you mentioned at the outset of this question, one of the great benefits of studying Bible prophecy is that it it strengthens our faith in a God who can be trusted. It shows us that he has fulfilled his prophecies in the past precisely as he said he would. And therefore, we have every reason to believe that his prophecies about the future are going to be fulfilled precisely as he says they is. So they are. So I think, you know, studying Bible prophecy is very exciting. It's not depressing. People think it is. Oh, it's all gloom and doom. No, the gloom, you know, you, you, you just kind of like with the gospel, you have to know the bad news to understand the good news. Same thing's true with God's plan of the ages. We don't study the bad news with fear and trepidation and think, oh, woe is me, the sky is falling. We study it because we know it's the precursor to when Christ is going to come back and make all things new. Uh, like I talked about uh, Easter Sunday, you know, there's a battle coming when Christ is going to judge the nations and all those unbelievers who didn't receive the free gift of salvation, all those worldly leaders who signed on with Satan, they're going to get 
the vengeance of God and the wrath of God, and he's going to strike the nations. And so that's exciting to me. Um, you know, God laughs. You know, we should take our cue from God. I, I said this in a recent sermon at Plum Creek, but, you know, if if we, when we get scared, just catch God's eye and recognize as he's looking down, he's not scared. He's laughing. He just thinks, oh, look what they're trying now, silly fools. They really think that's going to work? And that's the attitude we need to have. Um, now, there's a healthy uh, you know, respect, you know, never underestimate the enemy, uh, healthy recognition that Satan is alive and well, and he, the enemy is coming to kill, steal, and destroy. That gets into preparedness. And, you know, Proverbs 22, 3, the wise man sees trouble coming and prepares for it. So we don't, we're not naive and we're not dismissive about all the enemy is doing, but we never need to fear about it. We need to, you know, be safe and, 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 and recognize what's happening. But to me, the, the comfort far outweighs the the fear when studying Bible prophecy, because we know who wins in the end. Amen. With the rise of the uh, demonic activity uh, as it relates to, you know, uh, some of the school shootings, um, especially church members and, you know, the, you know, Washington, D.C. essentially saying the uh, shooter is the person that uh, we ought to be concerned about and have compassion for. Um, as days continue to be ever so darkened with demonic activity, I guess my question would be, you know, obviously protecting our family and protecting those and the fellowships that we belong to. What does the, you know, we know it'll perpetually get worse and worse and worse as the, you know, uh, coming of the Lord gets closer. What is it you encourage to, you know, to do as far as, uh, us being able to be peace and safety with a light post, if you will. Yeah, it, it that segues well out of your last question uh, in, in terms of, you know, knowing what's happening and being prepared for it. Um, I, I do think that if the Lord tarries is coming, we're going to see a, a significant increase in Christian persecution. Um, and, you know, you're right, the mainstream media the politicians, they're all, you know, turning truth on its head. And 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 to, I talked about that uh, on April 4th in my Prophecy Night a week ago. I encourage people to go back and check out that when it was all about the transgender movement. But yeah, I mean, anytime a transgendered person can kill six innocent people, and then they turn the transgender person into the victim, and that's just diabolical. That, that comes straight from the pit of hell. And so, you know, I think we're going to see more and more of that. People need to think through um what they are willing to do to protect their family. Um, uh, you know, I think you need, and you think you need uh, guns to protect your family. And I know for some people that sounds crazy um, because maybe you've not grown up in an environment of guns. I did, um, but you need to get trained. You need to go, you know, get some training and be prepared because if the Lord doesn't come back soon, any number of scenarios could play out that involve threats on your front door, either from marauding mobs, from evil anti-Christian haters, from the government, from, you know, you name it, where you might need to protect yourself. Um, it's not a bad idea anyway. Anyone who's the leader of their home ought to be protecting their home. That's just what you do, you know. Uh, and guns aren't the only way, but 
you know, you, you need to have, you know, have a dog or have some kind of security or have some kind of means of protection, um, self-defense. Even as I said last night, Jesus told the disciples, you know, to sell their knapsack and buy, or sell their robe and buy a gun. I mean, buy a sword, excuse me. Uh, so, you know, Jesus said, look, you need to, you know, be prepared to defend yourself if you need to. So, um, you know, that's priority number one for me. Uh, always has been. When we first started waking up, I realized, you know, we need to uh, we need to be prepared. And so I understand that they're probably going to come confiscate guns, um, but until they do, you know, you know, have some means of protection. Um, and you know, think we 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 they've they've done a good job of controlling our minds and controlling the narratives and and programming us, you know. We need to strip all that away and just think back what it was in earlier times of history. You know, uh, a pa in, in, in the Little House on the Prairie, you know, Laurel Ingalls Wilder thing, you know, his do- job every day was to kill a deer to eat or whatever, turkey, something. Make sure you had food on the table. Make sure you were warm in the winter. Make sure you had water. Make sure the kids had clothes to wear. And beyond that, he wasn't distracted by anything. I don't. I, I bet you that Pa Ingalls never made a single Facebook post his entire life. <laughs> Yet he he lived a pretty good life, you know? I mean, they just they just they do the fundamental things that come with humanity. And we need to strip away all the distractions and think, okay, food, water, shelter, protection, self-defense. Do I have the basics covered? And don't panic. Don't get overwhelmed by it. Just sit down with a pad and paper and just think through the what ifs. And am I prepared to defend my family if I need to need to do so? Can I ask you a couple uh, quick Bible questions? Yeah, you bet. All right. Um, one is uh, maybe piggybacking on the next question, which is the days of Noah. Um, uh, I know... I've usually been taught like, you know, the days of Noah is uh, also including like everything about the days of Noah, you know, the um, Nephilim, the messing with the human genome, violence covering the face of the earth, thoughts and intent, the heart being evil continually. And, um, but, and, and also I've heard it taught that it was like um, the days will like be like that before the rapture even, but um, I've listened to you recently and I think you've taught more that it's, contextually speaking about the second coming and pre- being prepared for the Lord's coming judgment or coming. Um, so I, I still hear a lot of people, you know, um, an old church I went to or, uh, you know, different people that are having podcasts like yourself who teach that way. But um, I guess my question with that is what can we um, being this side of the tribulation still glean from the days of Noah for ourselves in the application. Um, Like uh, the Lord knows how to deliver the righteous, but reserve judgment for the ungodly. Um, Is that an application we can make from it? Uh, The days of Noah or Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah. So the question you're asking is really a question of how can we apply a passage of scripture that's talking about future events after the rapture? Well, all scripture is profitable. So God wants the whole book of Revelation, except for the first three chapters, is after the rapture. So, of course, all scripture is profitable. We can learn from it. We learn a lot about God's plan of the ages. It's the rest of the story. I mean, the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, Luke uh, 21 and Mark 13, 
are all about that final seven-year period of tribulation just prior to Christ's return. And it's fascinating, and it's helpful to see how God's plan is going to unfold. It, you know, we're so self-centered that we think, you know, oh, since we're not going to be here, it doesn't matter. Of course it matters. It's God's plan. And by the way, we're a big part of that because we're going to come back right at the end of it with Christ to rule and reign and sit with him on thrones and so forth. So I, I don't know. I've never really understood why some people struggle with, you know, well, if it's not about the rapture, then what's the point of it? Well, it's, the point is it's all scriptures probably, you know? Um, so anyway, the days of Noah, you know, you're right. People do still frequently uh, talk about that. And I want to be clear that you know, there are good, solid Bible scholars that take it differently, and, you know, I respect that. It's This is not a hill to die on, per se, but let me just once again explain the context. First of all, it is a figure of speech, and basic Bible study methods uh, involves studying and understanding figures of speech. We use them in all languages. It's very common. This is a figure of speech called a simile, which is a comparison using like or as, and he says, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, when I use a simile, I am not suggesting that everything in the comparison is identical to what the, the thing I'm comparing it to. If I were to say to my wife, yeah, yeah man, this reminds me of what we went through uh, 10 years ago when we lived in uh, Illinois, and uh, man, yeah, it's just like that. Well, she's not going to say, no, you're an idiot. Our house was green then or our, we didn't have our dog, or we only had four children, or you worked for a different company, or and start detailing all the details that were different. Um, she understands that I'm talking about something in particular, right? And that's all Jesus was doing. In the context, he was saying to the future tribulation nation of Israel, which should be clear enough from the whole context of the, those chapters all around there in the in the last week of Christ's life, he re, he rejects Israel in chapter twenty two. He says, "I'm going to take the kingdom from you because you didn't receive it, and I'm going to give it to a future nation of Israel that believes in me." Uh, then he curses them, calls the leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites and vipers and whitewashed tombs and all that. And then the disciples say, "Well, what will be the sign of your coming? How will we, the nation of Israel, know?" that you're going, you know, the sign is, you know, that, that's, that your coming is near. And so then he gives all these signs, and his whole point is don't be deceived. And the future nation of Israel, just like the first century nation, is going to be highly susceptible to deception, only it'll even be worse, as Jesus says. And so he says, look, just as in the days of Noah, they were warned again and again that judgment was coming. They ignored it, and the flood swept them away in judgment. That's the way Luke describes it in Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse. In the same way, if you don't heed the warnings and come to faith, you're going to be swept away into judgment at Christ's return when he comes to strike the nation. So it's all about warning and judgment, all of the analogies that he uses around there. You know, the householder, if the householder had known when the thief was coming, he would have been prepared for him. Uh, you know, if the virgins had known when the bridegroom was coming, they would have been prepared for him. It's all about watchfulness and being ready because judgment is coming. So a lot of people today have expanded that days of Noah reference and have said that, you know, uh, everything that we saw in the days of Noah is going to be repeated now. So you see people talking about uh, the rise of the Nephilim. Well, I totally believe in the rise of the Nephilim, and I see that's part of the demonic, you know, army that Satan is uh, getting together, but I don't get that from Matthew 24 and this reference to the days of Noah. You don't need that to, to see that the Nephilim are still here. Other people use that days of Noah reference. A uh, good friend of mine who I love and respect says, well, 
you know, I know we're not going to see chaos uh, prior to the rapture because Bible said Jesus said like in the days of Noah it'll be like that, and so you know in the days of Noah they were you know everything was pretty normal. And so things will be normal now. Again, I think that's stretching the analogy. Uh, the point was in Noah's day, they were going through their life. He he mentions eating and drinking, but that's an incidental detail that has nothing to do with the main point. Remember, a figure of speech makes a main point. In this case, the, the simile makes a main point. We're not talking about all the details, the color of the house, the name of the dog, what street you lived on, how many kids you had, what you had for dinner that night. We're talking about you know, whatever the analogy you're making is. And it's an analogy about preparedness and watchfulness for judgment. And so uh, in the days of Noah, they were ignoring the warnings, going through their day-to-day life. And then all of a sudden the flood came and it was too late. Same thing's going to happen in the seven-year tribulation. Despite all the warnings, despite the 144,000 witnesses, despite the two witnesses, despite the angel at the end of the tribulation, people are going to ignore it and they'll have to pay an eternal price for it. And the application being that scripture is profitable, what even though it's, you know, for the tribulation saints is also for us today that we need to be ready uh, if you don't know the Lord today and not just. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right, Brian. I mean, we see other passages that are directly applicable that say life is but a vapor. You know, you don't know what tomorrow brings. Today's the day of salvation, Hebrews. So, yeah, we can take that same timeless truth of watchfulness that was in that context targeted to a future generation and apply it to our lives today. Um, I've heard with times and seasons there to begin 1 Thessalonians 5, um, or maybe it's even from different parts of Scripture that like we don't know the times and the seasons, but I've also heard that we do know the times and the seasons, but not the day of the rapture because it's imminent. So I guess I'm my question is, which is it? Do we know the times or the seasons, or don't we know? Because I think it says... I don't need to write to you concerning the times and the seasons. Yeah, the word times there, that is 1 Thessalonians. Also, Jesus says the same thing in Acts chapter 1 to the disciples. Uh, you know, he said, I'm not, I don't need to tell you the times. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Um, Acts chapter 1, verse, I think it's 11 ish. Um, and then Paul says the same thing. Times there is uh, the word uh, chronos, it means uh, length of time or duration. Uh, seasons, I think is, uh, I forget the Greek word, but it refers to a specific time. And so um, what he's saying there is that it's not for us to argue with God about when everything's going to unfold. God holds this plan in his hands. Um, But there are plenty of other passages that tell us the rapture is imminent. So the rapture, there's nothing that has to happen before the rapture can happen. There's no it's a signless event. So the rapture could happen at any moment. That's why we're told to eagerly watch for it and wait for it. Why would you eagerly wait for something that is not scheduled to happen until three and a half years, seven years, you know, whatever, like mid-trib and post-trib people say, it's it's nonsensical. Uh, never, I mean, there are plenty of reasons why the, you know, the mid-trib, post-trib, all those views are wrong. Hermeneutically, you know, it fails to distinguish between Israel and the church. It's, there's, there's, they just don't understand Daniel's nine seventy 70 weeks of prophecy, um, but the biggest one is the fact that the Bible teaches imminency, and if if the rapture happens at a prescribed time within a sequence of events, it's not imminent, and that vi- you know that's a direct violation of Scripture. So, yeah, I think uh, you know a lot of people when they say we're not supposed to know the times and the seasons, they're just not really 
interested in Bible prophecy. And so they use that as an excuse to say, well, I'm not worried about it. It's just, you know, I'm a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out in the end. That's really all I care about. Well, that's naive. It's also an affront to 16% of the Bible that God wants us to study. You know, all scripture is profitable. And, you know, I don't know why anyone wouldn't want to know the end of the story. I mean, why would you read two-thirds of a book? Just read the whole thing and and see how it plays out. That's encouraging. Uh with the pre-trib, I've heard you re- recently sometimes um, reference Darby and a Scottish lady, mm-hmm. and um, that's why they go. They being those that are attacking pre-trib, they go back there and say, "See, this is where pre-trib comes from." But it comes from the Bible. But mm-hmm. I don't really know that historical account of Darby and the Scottish lady very well. Would you be able to explain that to us a little bit? Yeah, Margaret MacDonald uh, is who they said. Who, by the way. Uh, you know, was uh, not even pre-trib herself. So, but that's what's so ironic about it. But I don't know the the whole details, but the, the long and the short of it is, you know, she allegedly was, uh, you know, influencing Darby. And that's, that's how this whole, you know, uh, thing came up. She was demonically influenced and he just invented this concept. But it's been so thoroughly debunked. One of the preeminent scholars of our day that we're so lucky to have is Dr. Tommy Ice, a dear friend of mine. We've worked together many times. I learned so much about him. I still remember the first time I met him. I I was a wide-eyed, starry-eyed, young academician that just started working at a college, and he was a hero. He was just a guy that had written books that I looked up to, and and I got to meet him, and I thought, man, this is great. Well, we became friends. I've spoken at the pre-trib conference that he runs uh, several times. I'm speaking again this year in December. Uh, we've done conferences, just the two of us together. He wrote a chapter in my one of my books. Uh, just He's just a brilliant man. And he is he runs the Pre-Trib Research Center. He's an academic, and he he has thoroughly debunked again and again this tired old argument that the you know haters of pre-trib and haters of Israel suggest when they bring this up. Um, as I've demonstrated, and as I had to study in my own uh, PhD studies, the notion of a two-phase return of Christ is well-documented in every century from the first century forward. Uh, you got people even in the Middle Ages and other times that did it. This is not something that came about in the 1800s. It is true that Darby was instrumental in systematizing and documenting and helping to teach the, the notion of the distinction between Israel and the church. Um, but to say that it began with him is just laughably false. And it's frankly, it's embarrassing. The minute anybody who criticizes me, either in question and answer sessions or email or whatever, and brings that up, <clears throat> I immediately dismiss them as ignorant fools because they clearly have not done their research. True academics, you know, and they're, look, let's face it, there's good conservative scholars that are not pre-trib and we disagree with them. And we can have a healthy debate with our Bibles on our laps and going verse by verse and explaining why we disagree on this and that. But they know they they would never bring that up. They know that that's you know false. And so um, you know the bottom line. Charles Ryrie, who was a, a a friend and mentor of mine as well, he wrote kind of the the first book and it's been reprinted today uh, on dispensationalism that really crystallized it all together. And he, he makes it clear that a dispensationalism is essentially three things. If you believe in a, you know, literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic, you know, the consistent employment of that, of that method, 
And you then believe in a literal distinction between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church. In other words, that he still has a future for national Israel in his plan. And you believe that ultimately it's all about bringing him glory, uh, the, what's called the doxological purpose of God in history, as opposed to the redemptive human aspect. I mean, that God is certainly saving mankind, but ultimately it's about bringing him glory. And if God had wanted to send every man to hell because we sinned against him, he could have done that. Uh, so God has a plan. God has plan for Israel and the church is distinct, and we must handle the Bible consistently with a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic. If you do that, you're a dispensationalist. And so, you know, I, you know someone said years ago, if you if you didn't bring a goat to church on Sunday, you're a dispensationalist. You just don't know it, you know, because we don't do sacrifices anymore. So clearly, God's plan of the ages is progressing and changing, and uh, doesn't mean it's different ways of salvation. But you know, uh, God's the Bible lays out a plan of progressively over time of God's plan, and that includes the restoration of Israel uh, to the land. And so, yeah, just you know, this uh, notion that. Uh, dispensationalism is some kind of a cult or sect. It's a biblical term, Ephesians 3.10. It comes twice it's mentioned in Ephesians. So it's the Greek word oikonomos, meaning economy. It means that God is, you know, in, in different times, uh, giving different stewardships to mankind. And today, the church is his envoy. Someday Israel will be back center stage again. My friend, he uh, recently said he doesn't believe in the rapture, pre, post, mid, or anything, and he's recently bitten into Calvinism. Is Calvinism yeah. come from? Is it dispensational, and then covenant is the opposite? Is mm -hmm. is covenant what uh, Calvinists come from? Well, there is a correlation between covenant theology and Calvinism. Calvinism as a theological system relates primarily to soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. And it, you know, I've talked about that extensively. People can see our series on what is Calvinism and is it biblical, uh, available at our online store, or they can see some of my books that I've written about it. Um, but it's it, it basically deals with the, the method of salvation, and which I believe is wrong. Um, so, but most Calvinists do tend to be non-dispensationalists. Covenant theologians. Covenant theology is essentially that the church has replaced Israel. There's one people of God from start to finish. God, you know, uh, ab abrogated his promises to Israel because they rejected him. Now the church is the future Israel. The kingdom is today. That Christ is reigning metaphorically in our hearts today. Uh, there's no future for national Israel. They don't have an eschatology. It's all just Christ is going to come back. The saved go to heaven, the lost go to hell, and it's all over. Nothing about Revelation is literal. Covenant guys take the book of Revelation as just a reiteration of the church age again and again. So the seal judgments is the church age. The trumpet judgments is the church age. The bold judgments is the church age. The millennium is the church age. Um, you know, the problem is, you know, Christ comes back in chapter 19 and the millennium doesn't happen until chapter 20. So you've got a real problem if you've got the return of Christ before the church age, but there are several problems with their view. And, you know, it all comes down to hermeneutics. So they, you know, the covenant guys, they take Old Testament prophecies that have already been fulfilled, literally, because they have no choice, right? Christ was literally born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. And Christ was literally born in Bethlehem and so on, a literal forerunner, John the Baptist. Um, but the prophecies relating to his second coming, they spiritualize. Oh, there's not going to be a literal temple like 
Ezekiel spends nine chapters describing, oh, that's just one big giant illustration. Uh, there's not going to be a literal throne like David was promised. You know, there's not going to be a literal temple. There's not going to be a literal kingdom with boundaries and so forth. So they 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 completely violate rules of hermeneutics by taking some things literally and some things figuratively. But we believe a consistent literal hermeneutic leads you to believe there's going to be a literal future kingdom. So it's rare for someone to be a dispensationalist and also a Calvinist, but they're out there. John MacArthur is the quintessential example. And by the way, John MacArthur, because he knows that that view is is quite rare, <clears throat> he calls himself a leaky dispensationalist because he knows he's dispensational in his eschatology and, and most other areas, but he's not dispensational in his soteriology. And my book, Freely by His Grace, which is a 600-page compendium of articles. I've got 14 contributors in there. I wrote two chapters. Tommy Ice wrote a chapter in there. But we make the case in there for the connection between dispensational theology and the free grace view of salvation. And it's it's very clear that all the dispensational guys, Chafer, you know, uh, Ryrie, Walver, all these hist historical heroes of the faith— who understood the future for national Israel, they preached a, a free grace gospel. They didn't preach a Calvinistic gospel according to which you have to pledge and promise and surrender and commit and make Jesus Lord and give all the bring all these things to the table, you know, as if it has to cost you something to get to heaven. You better bring your part to the game or you're not getting in. That's what Calvinism teaches. So I was blessed with your series on is Calvinism biblical? And one of well, two things that uh really blessed me with it is one that um when I talked with friends who got into Calvinism, they always said that I believe in a works-based salvation because I believed that I needed to put my faith in Jesus and that it was then a uh, work. But then Romans says that faith isn't counted as a work. And I didn't realize, like you had pointed out, that um, they actually just backload uh, works. And then also I kind of, with having some interaction with them over like a dozen years, um, had a... Uh, thrown out the baby with the bathwater when it comes to predestination and election, just because, you know, I can't understand that. I can't explain it very well. And I knew that how they were teaching it was wrong. So I kind of avoided it for so many years, but it was nice to be able to rest in scripture that it's a biblical antinomy and that if God says it, it's how it is, but it's free will and, you know, how he elects. And yeah. so that blessing, um, I'll let you go. I'm sure here soon. Kings and priests, uh, second Peter and revelation, uh, talk about like, we're a holy nation, uh, chosen generation. And then, um, revelation says that he's made us kings and priests unto our God. And, um, I've heard both of those being taught that it's speaking of Israel, but it seems to me like the context that could be the church, now I was wondering if um, you had any thoughts on that, if they're muddying up the waters, people I've been hearing teach that. No, I, I think it's talking about the church. I think we are going to be uh, kings and priests. We're going to be co-reigners, uh, what the book of Hebrews calls metakoi, the, you know, the partnership with Christ there. Jesus told the disciples they would reign on 12 thrones with him in the kingdom someday. They're the church, you know, they're part of the church. Um, so, you know, I, I think, you know, the 24 elders. So I think... Um, you, without getting into the specific passage and, and kind of dissecting it a little more closely, you know, my my short answer is I, I think clearly that we will be co-reigners with Christ. Now, not everybody, because some Christians will not be rewarded with that 
reward because of their lack of faithfulness during the Christian life. But everybody, of course, will have a positive experience in the kingdom. Heaven is a place without sin and sorrow, but it will be even more meaningful and more uh, positive experience, if you will, for those who have been faithful on this life and are rewarded accordingly at the Bema. Um, but back to just real quick, uh, back to what you said about um, the uh, Calvinism there. Yeah, the a lot of people who rightly, in my view, correct uh, reject Calvinist theology, they do also reject election, and they really go to great pains to try to show that you know election doesn't really mean you know individual election throughout Scripture. And I respect their view, and I, certainly we are on the same page in terms of our view of salvation. But I just don't, I just can't get there biblically. And so to me, the issue with Calvinism isn't election. I've never struggled with that. The Bible, in my view, makes it plain, plain that there is election. But the fact is, we don't have the mind of God. We don't know who's elect. We don't live in the realm of eternity. So we just take on faith that somehow election, even though we can't reconcile it with free will, exists, and God's going to sort it all out in the end. But in the meantime, we do what the Bible tells us to do, which is proclaim the gospel. We believe it's a bona fide offer for any of the 8 billion people on earth to receive the gift of salvation. And uh, some can receive it, Some everyone can receive it, or everyone can reject it. It's up to the individual. In the same way that Adam and Eve had, had a choice whether or not to sin in the garden, <clears throat> God didn't force them to sin. God doesn't force the remedy on people. And as far as faith being a gift, that's a very classic Calvinist view. They believe that you know, God has to believe for you. You don't have a choice. You get He makes you believe. And if, if you're one of the lucky ones, great. If not, too bad. You couldn't believe the gospel if you wanted to, right? That's their view. And so we believe anyone can believe, and faith is not a gift. It's ridiculous. Faith is the means of receiving the gift. You know, receiving a gift is not a work. It's not a work. If I handed you a present, and as soon as you took that present into your hands, Am I going to say, wow, boy, that was hard. Good work. Good job. How hard was that? Man, you worked really hard to take that gift. Man, you really earned it, didn't you? No, that, that as you said, Romans makes it clear in Romans 4 and Romans 11 that works and, and, and grace are not compatible. If it's of works, it's not of grace. It's of, if it's of grace, it's not of works. So it has to be free. And faith is just the means by which we receive the gift. It's Faith are basically the hands. In a physical realm, you use your hands to take possession of a gift. In the spiritual realm, you use faith to take possession of it. And once you've received that gift, you're born again. Your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You're justified before a holy God. You're reconciled with a holy God. All these things happen. The Spirit permanently indwells you. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise and so forth. And instantly, you're you're changed. But uh, you, you have to receive the gift. A, a forced gift is no gift at all. So you have to receive it. So... Um, any last minute thoughts before we wrap up? You guys have been really a joy. I wish we had more time, but I gotta, I gotta bring on Randy here shortly. I mean, I uh, can't wait to see what what he's gonna say. We love Randy too, so we love you both. <laughs> don't tell, don't tell Randy that he doesn't need a bigger head. You know. I have one last thing, uh, just for you know anyone who hears this, just a call to action for JB and not by works. Um, Man, for prayer and protection and blessing and direction, discernment. I mean, you you name it. I can I can't even probably comprehend the amount of uh, battle that takes place. Um, you know, we're all called to that. But if you're okay, JB, if I could say a prayer, um, is that okay? Yeah, you bet. You pray, and then I'll, I want to have some closing thoughts. Man, I absolutely appreciate your prayers, and so yeah, please, please do. 
Lord, we uh, pray for JB and not by works. And we pray that you would help them to, uh, man, wear the whole armor of God and that you would go before them and uh, lay the path that you've uh, set before them, Lord, that they may walk in it and walk humbly with you and that they be, be able to be the ever bright light in the ever so darkening world, Father. Uh, we thank you for all of them, for their love and uh, discernment and direction. Um, we just pray for uh, those that have ears to hear, uh, especially in these uh, last of the last days, that you would help us to turn our hearts uh, fully to you, uh, Lord, and that we would uh, share your gospel as if it's, um, man, the, the lateness in the hour that mm -hmm. we would concerned about the souls of men. And just thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, um, so guys, this has been awesome. You've been such a blessing. And um, I just want to mention um, something I've never mentioned before on the podcast, because it's just not something we, we really necessarily promote or make a big deal of. But on our podcast channel at Podbean, we have the opportunity for folks to become a patron. And recently, uh, a sweet uh, uh, listener named Laura uh, signed up to uh, help support our ministry with a small gift. And we have said on our uh, podcast channel that if uh, you do that, we would give you a, a public thank you and, and a shout out. And I just have so appreciated Laura. She sent me an email and we've dialogued a little bit and just wanted to say thanks to her for, for letting the Lord use her to be a blessing to our ministry and for that gift. And uh, if you go to Podbean, uh, where which is kind of the host channel for all of our podcasts, I know people listen to it on a variety of podcast providers, Apple and Spotify and you know Amazon and Google and where, whatever. But if you go to Podbean, uh, you can see more about what it means to be a patron uh, supporter there. And we offer uh, some thank you gifts and so forth. But just wanted to say a special word of thank you to Laura. Uh, so we appreciate you. And then also want to remind you that here a little bit later today, of course, by the time you're listening to this, it might already be posted, but we're going to have our podcast with Randy, or World Events Update. So you can look forward to that and check that out today as well. And then, uh, you know, Jeremy and, and Brian, I just appreciate you guys being on the front lines of truth. Uh, I know you've had to make some hard decisions in terms of, uh, you know, your Christian walk with churches and other friends, I'm sure, like everybody else, where you've had to make a stand and uh, just continue to trust the Lord and, and stand for Him. And I know He'll bless you. And um, let's do it again sometime. And I'll, I'll try. I'll try to not have back-to-back -back podcasts, so maybe we can take even longer. Because I, I love this stuff. But uh, but thanks for for letting me into your uh, your living room there. And uh, we'll uh, you know we'll look forward to doing it again. Sounds, Sounds good. good. Thanks, Thank you, JB. Hey, you bet. And so uh, as always, appreciate your support and your prayers uh, for my family and for our ministry and for Plum Creek Chapel. Uh, stay in touch with us and. Uh, if you'd ever like to uh, have one of these Zoom sessions where we just dialogue, as you just heard about all things related to Scripture and current events, uh, shoot me an email and uh, Brooke will respond to you and we'll try to put that on the calendar. But until then, God bless and we will, uh, we will talk to you soon.